In 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. The greatest evidence, the most substantial proof that God not only exists, but dwells in believers is revealed when he gives them his Spirit. Ultimately, it is the Spirit's presence in the heart that makes it known who dwells in God and he in them. And Barnes on this verse, Hereby know we that we dwell in him. Here is another or an additional evidence of it. Because he hath given us his Spirit, he has imparted the influences of that Spirit to our souls, producing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, etc., It was one of the promises which the Lord made to his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them after he should be withdrawn from them. And one of the clearest evidences which we can have that we are the children of God is derived from the influence of that Spirit on our hearts. Verse 14 now. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Because the Apostle John had personally observed Jesus in both his earthly and resurrected form and had subsequently been given the Holy Spirit by him, he could openly testify to the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, the internal evidence of the indwelling spirit is corroborated by the external evidence of the eyewitnesses to the fact of the Father having sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, end quote. Verse 15 now, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. The recognition of Christ's deity is not something that can occur merely in the head, but must be a genuine and sincere belief that originates in the heart and then is made public to the world. It is an act of submission and subjection to the Son of God, that leads to God's salvation. Acts 5.32, And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Verse 16 now, And we have known and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in him and God in him. Two of the very first evidences of salvation are men possessing both the Holy Spirit and the love of God in their hearts. He who is truly born of God has been given a divine spirit, and as a result of this, will love deeply both God and other Christians born of him. If any then desire to know whether or not they are saved and have true fellowship and union with the Heavenly Father, then they need only to ask themselves if both God's spirit and God's love dwells in them. If this is confirmed and true and can be eternally testified to, then it is certain that a man or woman has been brought to spiritual life by the Son of God and possesses a union with both the Father and the Son. By love are men confirmed to be the children of God. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, Jesus Christ, so are we in the world. By following Christ's example of love, his people are assured that they shall have nothing to fear in the day of his judgment. Because Christ's love lives within the hearts of those saved by him, 
and they live as he lived in the world, then nothing more is needed for them to have met God's will for their life. Having obeyed Christ's two commandments, to love both God and his neighbor, allows the believer to approach the tribunal of Christ with the spiritual confidence that the life lived was in obedience to his Lord. Understandably, love proves that men are truly the children of God by their possessing and manifesting the same loving nature as him. Barnes on this verse. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. The idea is that he who has true love to God will have nothing to fear in the day of judgment and may even approach the awful tribunal where he is to receive the sentence which shall determine his everlasting destiny without alarm. Because as he is, so are we in the world. That is, we have the same traits of character which the Savior had. And resembling him, we need not to be alarmed at the prospect of meeting him. End quote. Verse 18 now. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. There is no fear in love, since perfect love casts out all fear of God and any sheepiness to be judged by him. Yet a fear of divine judgment remains. This is strong evidence that love still remains an unfinished work in the believer. Just as love is a fruit of the Spirit, fear is a characteristic of the flesh. Because of this, not until love has grown and accomplished its full purpose, revealing obedience to divine will, will all fear of heavenly judgment be removed. Barnes also on this, But perfect love casteth out fear, that is, love that is complete, or that is allowed to exert its proper influence on the soul. As far as it exists, its tendency is to deliver the mind from alarms. If it should exist in any soul in an absolutely perfect state, that soul would be entirely free from all dread in regard to the future. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. He about whose mind there lingers the apprehension of future wrath shows that love in his soul has not accomplished its full work. Perhaps it never will on any soul until we reach the heavenly world, though there are many minds so full of love to God as to be prevailingly delivered from fear. End quote. Verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. The origination of all love has its source in God. It is because God first loved man that men have come to love him. Consequently, if a man has deep affection and love for God, he can be encouraged that the reason love abides and has made its home in his heart is because God first loved him. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, We love him because he first loved us. The passage is susceptible of two explanations. One, that the fact that he first loved us is the ground or reason why we love him, or two, that as a matter of fact, we have been brought to love him in consequence of the love which is manifested towards us, though the real ground of our love may be the excellency of his own character, end quote. Matthew Poole also on this verse, he is the fountain of love, ours but the stream, his love the inducement, the pattern, and the effective cause of ours, end quote. Verse 20 now. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? 
If there is any professed love for God while hating those born of him, then it is certain that a man is a liar concerning his true relationship with the Lord. As a man's relationship or lack of it towards those born of God practically reveals if his profession of faith is either genuine or counterfeit. Thus, if there is an absence of love and hate is taking its purpose place on the heart, then none should consider themselves true Christians. It is also unreasonable to presume that any can love God who cannot be seen if there is not love for those born of God who can be. In truth, one born of God who's become a son of God cannot hate simply because it is completely contrary to the Holy Spirit that lives within him. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on uh, 1 John 4.20 If we do not love the brethren, the visible representatives of God, how can we love God, the invisible one, whose children they are? End quote. Verse 21 now. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. The commandment spoken of, and was taught by Jesus, is that all who truly love God will love their spiritual brother also. The emphasis is on the source of the commandment, which came from none other than the Son of God. Barnes on this verse, That is, the command to love a brother is as obligatory as to love God. If one is obeyed, the other ought to be also. If a man feels that one is binding on him, he should feel that the other is also and he can never have evidences that he is a true Christian unless he manifests love to his brethren as well as love to God. 1 John 5, 1 now. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. What is true of loving other Christians is even more true of loving he who makes them such. Hence, just as the previous argument was that if men love God, they will love their brother also. Now it is added that if a man truly loves God, he will love all those begotten of him. This undoubtedly includes Jesus Christ himself, the only begotten Son of God. Ultimately, if God is genuinely adored, cherished, and embraced, there will be similar love for both the Son and those born again of God through him. Verse 2 now. By this we know that we love God the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this verse, As our love to the brethren is the sign and test of our love to God. So, John says here, Our love to God, tested by our keeping his commandments, is, conversely, the ground and only true basis of love to our brother. End quote. Any true affection for God will result in the keeping of his commandments. Therefore, just as the apostle argued, one, that those who possess the Spirit dwell in God and He in them, and two, that those who also dwell in love likewise dwell in God and He in them. Now, thirdly, it is that those who truly love God will keep His commandments. By these three spiritual realities, we can see who has genuine and authentic relationship with the Heavenly Father, and if any do not. Scripture, therefore, makes it abundantly clear that a mere profession of relationship with the Father is not enough. If there remains a lack of the Holy Spirit, a deficiency of love for the brethren, and a failure to keep God's commandments. Ultimately, there is no such thing as a disobedient Christian, or a Christian lacking love, or a Christian who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, 
simply because these three divine signs both confirm and establish where true salvation exists and where it does not. Verse 3 now. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. In conjunction with the truth that all those who truly love God will keep His commandments is the added revelation that God's commandments are not burdensome nor difficult to be borne. The Greek word for grievous is baros. Strong's defines the word as heavy, weighty, burdensome. That violent oppression helps word study defines the word properly heavy, weighty, figuratively. What is grievous burdensome, pressing down on a person with oppressive force. Such a grievous burden makes a person unable to function in joy-free movement. It is sin that weighs men down and is a heavy weight to bear, and surely not obedience to God's will. This is because the Lord puts nothing on a man that is not profitable for his life and good for his soul. Hence, subjection is always good, acceptable, and perfect for those who yield their lives to doing God's will and cannot be considered either burdensome or grievous in any manner. Ultimately, keeping God's commandments is joy to the soul, health to the body, and prosperity for the life. For these reasons and many others, it is always good for men to keep God's word, which enables them to live a happy and profitable life. Barnes on this verse, in regards to the Greek here, that is difficult to be borne as a burden. The meaning is that his laws are not unreasonable. The duties which he requires are not beyond our ability. His government is not oppressive. It is easy to obey God when the heart is right. And those who endeavor in sincerity to keep his commandments do not complain that they are hard. All complaints of this kind come from those who are not disposed to keep his commandments. Indeed, they object that his laws are unreasonable, that they impose improper restraints, that they are not easily complied with, and that the divine government is one of severity and injustice. But no such complaints come from true Christians. They find his service easier than the service of sin, and the laws of God more mild and easy to be complied with than those of fashion and honor which they once endeavored to obey. The service of God is freedom. The service of the world is bondage. No man ever yet heard a true Christian say that the laws of God requiring him to lead a holy life, were stern and grievous. But who has not felt that in regards to the extorable laws of sin? 1 John verse 4 now. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Barnes on this verse, John makes this affirmation of all who are born of God. Whatsoever, or as the Greek is, everything which is begotten of God, meaning to affirm undoubtedly that in every instance where one is truly regenerated, there is this victory over the world, end quote. This scripture makes two very important points. One, that whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. Two, the means by which this victory is accomplished is through faith. A true child of God, therefore, cannot be, nor ever will be, overcome by this world, as so many who are not the children of God confirmably are. Hence, Christians are not and should never be considered victims of this world, simply because through Jesus Christ and His triumphant ministry, they have defeated it. Wherever and whenever you see true Christians, one who has been regenerated through the impartation of the Holy Spirit, 
then it is both certain and visible that they have overcome the world. Their very own lives prove it. Ephesians 4.8 Wherefore he saith, Christ saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Barnes on this verse, he led captivity captive. The meaning of this in the psalm is that he triumphed over his foes. The margin is a multitude of captives, but this, I think, is not quite the idea. It is language derived from a conqueror who not only makes captives, but who makes captives of those who were then his prisoners and who conducts them as part of his triumphal procession. He not only subdues his enemy, but he leads his captives in triumph. The allusion is to the public triumphs of conquerors, especially as celebrated among the Romans in which captives were led in chains, and to the custom in such triumphs of distributing presents among the soldiers. When Christ ascended to heaven, he triumphed over all his foes. It was a complete victory over the malice of the great enemy of God and over those who had sought his life. But he did more. He rescued those who were the captives of Satan and led them in triumph. Man was held by Satan as a prisoner. His chains were round him. Christ rescued the captive prisoner and designed to make him a part of his triumphal procession into heaven, that thus the victory might be complete, triumphing not only over the great foe himself, but swelling his procession with the attending hosts of those who had been the captives of Satan, now rescued and redeemed. End quote. Verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Many a sinner has had this world beat them down, drain them of all strength, and ultimately ruin their life. Yet there is no true Christian that it can be said was overcome in this manner. Because of faith in the Son of God, Christ has made all those born of the Spirit to overcome all the oppressiveness, sin, death, and evil forces of this world. In Christ is the Christian made victorious through belief in the Son of God, and is certainly not because of any earthly power within himself. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, Who else but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ? Confirming by a triumphant question to find all contradiction as an undeniable fact that the victory which overcomes the world is faith. For it is by believing that we are made one with Jesus, the Son of God, so that we partake of his victory over the world and have dwelling in us one greater than he who is in the world. Survey the whole world and show me even one of whom it can be confirmed with truth that he overcomes the world who is not a Christian and endowed with this faith, End quote. Verse 6 now. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. There are many speculations as to the true meaning of this verse. But like with most things, the simplest explanation is often the most satisfactory one. The scripture states here that Jesus came by water and blood. If we are to understand this in simple terms, then it is seen that Jesus' earthly ministry began when John the Baptist baptized him with water. In respect to Christ coming to his people with blood, it should be remembered that just as Christ's earthly ministry began with water, 
his heavenly ministry began with his death and the shedding of his blood. Thus, in both instances, at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, which began with water, and then the commencement of his heavenly ministry, which began with blood, the Spirit of God witnessed to and gave supernatural testimony that Jesus was the Son of God. These two spiritual events, the heavenly baptism of Christ, when the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and Christ's resurrection from the dead, revealing his divine nature, testified to by the Spirit of holiness, and Christ becoming a life-giving Spirit, proved him to be the Son of God. Verse 7 now. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. For a more thorough and detailed examination of this verse and the Greek words used to translate it into English, it is recommended that the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible notes are thoughtfully read on this important topic. It is on earth that the context evidently requires the witness of the three, the spirit, the water, and the blood, to be born mystically, setting forth the divine triune witness, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, end quote. 1 John 5, 8 now. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Continuing with the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible, more understanding is given to the true meaning of the thought introduced, that Christ's ministry in the earth has a threefold witness, verifying him as the promised Messiah. And now the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this. Tend unto one result. Their agreeing testimony to Jesus' sonship and Messiahship. They give by the sacramental grace in the water of baptism, received by the penitent believer, by the atoning efficacy of his blood, and by the internal witness of his spirit. Answering to the testimony given to Jesus' sonship and messiahship by his baptism, his crucifixion, and the Spirit's manifestation in him. By the baptism then received by Christ, and by his redeeming blood shedding, and by that which the Spirit of God, whose witness is infallible, has effected, and still affects by him the Spirit. The water and the blood unite as the threefold witness to verify his divine messiahship. End quote. Verse 9 now. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. It is one thing for men to testify as to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. It is quite another thing when God himself testifies. God's witness is therefore significantly greater, more worthy to be trusted, and infinitely more reliable than any earthly witness. For if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. It should be noted that in regards to both the origination of the Word of God and the true identity of Jesus Christ, critics have for thousands of years argued that Christianity was founded upon men, that the Word of God came from men, and the Son of God was nothing more than a man. What is undoubtedly left out in this weak and deceptive claim is that God himself both bore and bears witness to Christ being his son. Hence, it is not merely man that is born testimony that Jesus is the son of God, but also, and more importantly, that God himself is openly witness to this truth. Barnes on this, for this is the witness of God, the testimony above referred to, that born by the spirit and the water and the blood, who that saw his baptism and heard the voice from heaven could doubt that he was the Son of God. Who that saw his death on the cross 
and that witnessed the amazing scenes which occurred there could fail to join with the Roman centurion in saying that this was the Son of God. Who that has felt the influence of the internal spirit on his heart ever doubted that Jesus was the Son of God. Any one of these is sufficient to convince the soul of this. All combine bearer on the same point and confirm it from age to age. Verse 10 now. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. There is no true Christian who does not possess a spiritual witness in his own heart that Jesus is the Son of God. This witness is the Spirit of God given through Christ which abides in him. Understandably, no man can ever fully believe upon Jesus Christ without having a personal witness of experiencing the Lord himself. This is accomplished by the Holy Spirit being given to all who believe upon him as the Son of God and yield their lives to his Lordship. The Cambridge Bible on 1 John 5.10 But in him, in this context cannot mean anything but in himself. The external witness, faithfully accepted, becomes internal certitude. Our faith in the divinity of Christ attests its own divine origin, for we could not have obtained it otherwise than from God. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. He who refuses to believe the testimony of God, presented at Christ's baptism, his being raised from the dead, and God sending the Holy Spirit in Christ's name, has no other option than to argue that God has lied regarding Jesus being his only begotten Son. When men then do not receive the record that God has given of the Son, they position themselves as branding God a liar. To not believe in the Son of God and his being sent by God is to refute the holy record of God and to declare him a liar. Barnes on this verse. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record. The idea is that in various ways, at his baptism, at his death, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, by the miracles of Jesus, God had become a witness that the Lord Jesus was sent by him as a Savior, and that to doubt or deny this partook of the same character as doubting or denying any other testimony. That is, it was practically charging him who bore the testimony with falsehood, end quote. Verse 11 now. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The sum, the conclusion of the whole matter regarding the identity of Jesus Christ, is that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the person of his Son. In Christ there is divine evidence of possessing eternal life, where in all other things there is surely not. Barnes on this, and this is the record, this is the sum or the amount of the testimony, which God hath given respecting him, that God hath given us eternal life, has provided through the Savior the means of obtaining eternal life, and this life is in his Son, is treasured up in him, or is to be obtained through him. End quote. Matthew Poole's commentary on 1 John 5.11, his testimony that this is his Son, and the Christ imports so much that eternal life is in him as the source and fountain of it, so that he gives it to us in no other way than in and by him, end quote. Verse 12 now. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. 
There is hardly a verse which is so simple, solid, and succinct regarding who has been given eternal life. It is those who possess the Son of God. So that if a man hath a son, he hath the life of God. But if he hath not the son, then neither does he possess that spiritual life that comes only through him. Ultimately, it is a man's faith in, obedience to, and relationship with the Son of God that allows for the gift of eternal life being given to him. The Cambridge Bible on this verse, a deduction from the preceding clause. If the Son has the life in himself, then whoever has the Son has the life. And no man can have the one without the other. To have the Son must be compared with to have the Father. In both cases, have signifies possession in living union through faith. Half life. Better, half the life. Not merely the life just mentioned, the life which God has given, but the life which in the full sense of the world is such. He hath not. The negative alternative is stated generally and indefinitely. The addition of of God is neither fortuitous nor pleonastic. Those who possess him know that he is the son of God. Those who do not need not to be reminded whose son it is they reject. The verse constitutes another close parallel with the gospel. Compare the last words of John the Baptist, John 3.36, end quote. And the pulpit commentary on this verse. Eternal life is not granted to the whole world or even to all Christians in masses. It is given to individuals, soul by soul, according as each does or does not accept the Son of God. End quote. Verse 13 now. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Because God's life resides in the Son and cannot be found in any other place, the Apostle's great aim in writing this epistle is purposed to lead people to belief in the Son of God to gain the eternal life of God offered through him. If Christ is possessed, then a man will know that there is something dwelling in him apart from his physical and material makeup, which has its origin in God. This is also the reason why the gospel should be preached today and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, should be declared to the world because only through him can men be both given and come to practically know that God's eternal life is theirs. To therefore preach Christ and make him known is to preach that precious gift of spiritual regeneration and the divine life offered through belief in the Son of God. To preach Christ is to preach the wonderful revelation that God's eternal life can be found in him. End quote. <laughs>